Uh, happy Easter. Uh, let's pray, and then uh, I'll get started uh, through our lesson this morning. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which lets us know that what he did on the cross was, was what your word said he would do. He was there under your wrath, standing in our place, taking the punishment, taking on the wrath of God that should have been aimed at us. And God, you, you resurrected him from the dead to prove your victory and his victory over sin and over death. He is the first fruits, the promise of more resurrections to come, and those are ours. God, we, we thank you for the cross and for the empty tomb and for the evidence uh, that helps us to believe with our, with our brains and not just our hearts. God, we love you. Uh, bless our time this morning in your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, an old story is told of, of, of a recruit in World War II who was being deployed to Europe. And, and just before he shipped out, he asked his girlfriend, he proposed to marry him, he, he proposed to his girlfriend. And even though she loved him and, and once wanted to be his wife, she said no. And it wasn't because she didn't want to be his wife. It was because uh, he wasn't going to the front. He was, he was going to be stationed in England for the duration of the war. And everyone knew by that point that lots of American GIs wound up with, with, with English sweethearts and girlfriends. And she was concerned about his faithfulness. So she said no, and she said, you, you prove that you can be faithful, and then, then we can get married. So, so he shipped out, and uh, they, they corresponded. They wrote letters like crazy, and she was constantly asking him, you know, about his faithfulness and where he was going and who he was with. And, and he was trying to reassure her and told her his biggest problem was just boredom. So she sent him a harmonica uh, to give him something to do. And, and at one point, he, he wrote her a letter and said, Sweetheart, when, when all the other guys go into the city to, to sort of chase the night, I just lay in my bunk and I play this harmonica and I think of you. He went on and corresponded through the rest of the war. And when the war ended, he returned home. and He got off that bus and he, he saw his sweetheart over there in the distance. And they ran toward each other and threw their arms around each other. And he said, now will you marry me? And she said, absolutely. As soon as you play me something on that harmonica. See, faith is one thing, but it's kind of nice to have some evidence sometimes. And the passage that I want to share with you this morning is Jesus' conversation about the evidence uh, for, for his resurrection, for his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Now, I, I won't be going through all of the evidence we have for why we should believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I've done that in the past on Easter. If you would like to, to hear some more evidence uh, the, the real, the, why we can believe logically that Jesus rose from the dead, contact me, uh, our website, imperialberean.org. Uh, the Contact Us tab is on there, and, and you can contact me, and I'll, I'll send you, it'll be audio only, but I'll, I'll send you some teaching of, uh, or some articles that, that, that help you. But this is one story uh, that Jesus, where Jesus talked about the evidence. 
It's uh, the story where Jesus was speaking to two followers of his on a road to Emmaus on the very first Easter Sunday. Just before our passage opens today, um, Luke has already, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke today, and Luke has already told us by the time our passage starts about um, that first Easter Sunday. So Luke has told us about Good Friday where Jesus was, was brutally crucified and then hastily buried before sundown when the Sabbath began. Uh, Saturday was, was quiet. The disciples were all huddled together in hiding. And then Luke has, has already told us by the time we pick up this morning that that first Easter Sunday, some women went to the tomb with spices they had prepared, and they were going to use that. Uh, they didn't do embalming back then, but uh, they would coat a body in, in spices. That was a respectful burial. And these women went to the, to the tomb where they had seen Jesus buried, on Friday, with these spices to to give him a respectful burial, to treat his body respectfully. But when they got there, they found he wasn't there. So the disciples later that morning were huddled in this house. These women come back, and they share with them a story that is really hard for anyone huddled hiding in that house to believe. They say they got to the tomb. The stone was rolled away. Jesus' body is not inside. And they say... And an angel visited them and told them that Jesus not only is not there, but Jesus is no longer dead. He's alive. He has been raised from the dead. Well, Luke tells us that, that Peter, Luke mostly follows Peter. Peter rushes to the tomb. John tells us he went to in his gospel. and He finds the scene like those women um, said it was, that the Stone was rolled away, the tomb was empty, Jesus' burial cloth was there, but there was no sign of Jesus. And Luke tells us that Peter turned around and went home. And where we pick up today, there are two other Jesus followers, not part of the twelve, not, not part of the twelve disciples, but other followers of Jesus who had been with the twelve. They're going to head home. There's a seven-mile walk between where the disciples were staying and a town called Emmaus. And these disciples, these followers of Jesus, are walking home, leaving the, the confusion and fear and, and depression of Jerusalem behind. And so what we're going to read now is, is Luke's main resurrection appearance story. It doesn't happen at the empty tomb or even in Jerusalem, but on the road to Emmaus. So we're going to read together Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. In the New American Standard, they read this way. And behold, two of them, so two disciples who had been huddled together hiding, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing Jesus. And Jesus said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, 
named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? And Jesus said to him, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the death sentence and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had also said, but Jesus they did not see. And Jesus said to these two travelers, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening. The day is now nearly over. So we went in to stay with him. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it, breaking it. And he began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and Jesus vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with the eleven, saying, The Lord really has risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their story, their experiences on the road, and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. That's our story for this morning. And, and Luke begins this, his, his first um, resurrection appearance, his main resurrection appearance story, by painting a picture of discouragement on what really is history's most encouraging day. So this is a story of two believers in Jesus. We don't know who they are, but, but, but they're heading home, getting away from Jerusalem and Again, the, the fear of, of, of the authorities who just put Jesus to dead and the confusion of all that had happened. And, and I don't know who these two are. One of them is named Cleopas. The other one is unnamed. Some people think this is, instead of two men, is a, that that word is used generically in the text. This could be a husband and wife. It could be a, a father and a mostly grown son or daughter. It could be two brothers. We don't know. We don't know who they were. But we can tell what they were doing on that seven-mile walk home. They were, they were trying to figure out, rationalize, make sense of all that God had allowed to happen over the previous week. They talked about all these things which must have meant um, more than just the crucifixion. Maybe they had been there the previous Sunday, a week before, 
what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus had, had ridden into Jerusalem up the hill on the, a colt, the foal of a donkey, um, exactly the way uh, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah had predicted the, the Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem. So Jesus, a week before this day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem basically holding up a giant sign that said, I am claiming to be the Christ. Maybe those two were among the crowds that shouted Hosanna that day. Maybe they were around Jesus while he debated the religious leaders during that last week of his life. And they presumably were around, I think they were around Thursday night in the upper room. Maybe Jesus washed their feet. I think because of what Luke shares in their story, he was, they were there when, when Jesus broke the bread in the Last Supper and, and passed the cup, symbolizing his body and his blood. And they were apparently around when things got really scary really fast, when Jesus was arrested and just brutally beaten and executed on that torturous cross. And we know they were in hiding with the rest of the disciples that Sabbath night. Now the Sabbath is over and they're free to travel and, and, and they're out. They're going back home, discussing with one another how God could possibly let this happen. Well, verse 15 says that while they were walking, they were talking and then your Bible says something like debating or deliberating or discussing or reasoning. The, the second Greek word there is is for a, a very emotional conversation. That's the kind of conversation they were happening. And, and Luke tells us that Jesus himself approached and began to walk along with them, obviously overhearing parts of their discussion. In verse 16, Luke adds something of a parenthesis to, to let us know that Jesus wasn't necessarily in disguise, but God kept these two from... Um, from recognizing Jesus. And so these, these two travelers, uh, they're walking along, and Jesus then, who they think is a stranger, just says, what are these things, what are these matters you are discussing so intently while you walk along? And then in their response to that question, their initial response, we can see their, their, their depression. This is why I say, this is a picture of discouragement that Luke is painting. The end of verse 17, it's on the screen there. It says, when, when Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? They stood still looking sad. I think most of us have felt what those two travelers felt at that moment. Let me see if I can describe it for you. All of us of a certain age know the, the very unique kind of pain that only comes from losing someone we love. When, when someone we love dies, that kind of intense pain. And if you fast forward in your memory from one of those situations, maybe you've experienced this. You're gathered together with, with someone else or some other people that you know and love, and, and you're holding it together emotionally, and you're beginning to talk about things that have to be talked about at that time. Maybe you're trying to make sense of what happened. Maybe you're talking about making arrangements. But, you know, you're sad, but you're holding it together. And then, then the doorbell rings. And someone else comes over. And they just ask, hey, how are you doing? 
what happens at that point? It's like the wound opens up again. And the, and the pain becomes flood, floods back in and becomes real. I think that's what happens right here. These two are discussing all the stuff that had happened, but they're holding it together. And then this man they think is a stranger says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And it stops them in their tracks. They stop walking. They stand still and they can't hide the sadness on their faces. And then in verse 18, the named traveler, Cleopas, he does something we, I think most of us can understand too. I think he tries to give Jesus the stiff arm. I think he tries to get this man he thinks is a stranger to butt out. He says, basically, where have you been, under a rock? Are you so dumb that you have been in Jerusalem and you don't know what's just happened? But Jesus is undeterred. Jesus uh, presses on. In verses 19 through 24, Jesus uh, asks one more time, it's just one little word in Greek, but what things, what, what have you been talking about? I want to hear you say it. Now, what is Jesus doing? Um, if you've heard me preach um, a lot, you've probably heard me say, when you're reading your Bible, pay special attention anytime God asks questions. Because God never asks questions he doesn't already know the answer to. I mean, Jesus is, keeps asking, what are you guys talking about? Tell me about this Jesus. Jesus is not doing some investigation to try to figure out what has happened to him over the previous week. He's well aware, right? He knows. So what's he doing? What he wants, he wants these two followers of his to begin to put the pieces together, to examine the evidence they actually have. He's trying to elicit from them. He wants them to lay out all of the evidence they have, and, and they take the bait. It's what they do. Um, in, in their travels, they've been asking, I'm sure, some good questions. Were, were we wrong in thinking Jesus was the Christ? What could God possibly have been thinking in allowing his son, to be destroyed the way he was destroyed. So Jesus is leading them to, to lay out the evidence they have. And they do. The two of them, Luke says. Um, in verses 19, they begin to say um, that, that Jesus was obviously had proved himself to be very powerful in his teaching and his miracles. He proved to be a prophet. And, uh, and that's like saying he, he belongs in the Israelite Hall of Fame. Jesus was more than a prophet, but he was a prophet. And that's high praise, praise for, a, for a Jew to say of another Jew. And they, they talk about, though, um, they seem to conclude that, that Jesus' great power was not enough. Uh, and they dejectedly talk about how, how Jesus was, was killed. And, and we can see their, their discouragement their depression. Uh, when they say, notice the past tense here in verse 21, they say, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We, we had hoped that he was the Christ, the Messiah, but he's obviously not. Dead guys don't make very good kings, and the Christ was to be a king. Not only this, they say, but today is the third day since these things happened. You see, Jesus had on multiple occasions predicted his death. 
But he had also predicted that on the third day, something amazing would happen. That he would, that he would come back to life. And they're like, well, here it is, the third day. You know, and we haven't seen hide nor hair of him. And there had no revolution has started. The Romans haven't been uh, destroyed or attacked. So they're basically saying, so this is just a really depressing Sunday. But it's a weird Sunday, they say. Verse 22, they say, some women of our group, some other Jesus followers, they went to the tomb and, and they said his body wasn't there. And they said they had seen angels or a vision of angels, whether they really saw angels, you know, we don't know. But And this angels apparently told these women that Jesus was alive. And then some of our other friends ran to the tomb and, and they found it like the women said, but, you know, they didn't see him. And with that, their story's over. That, that's the evidence. That's the evidence that they have. And this stranger, whom we know is Jesus, but they didn't, has gotten them to, to lay out the evidence they have. Well, having heard them recount the evidence, in verses 25, 6, and 7, Jesus responds to them very emotionally, very, very sharply. And he basically says to them, what more evidence do you need? This is pretty kind of biting, kind of harsh from Jesus. He says in verse 25, he calls them fools because they're too slow to believe what they already have enough evidence to believe, what they should already believe. In verse 26, he asks them a rhetorical question. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? If we were reading this in Greek, in Greek you could ask a question in a way that anticipates a yes or no answer to the question. And, and Jesus asks this in a way that he anticipates yes. Yes, it, it was necessary. Don't you know it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory? And then in verse 27, Luke tells us this. Then, beginning with Moses, so beginning with the beginning of the Bible, and going all the way through all of the prophets of the old, what we call the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to them the things that were written about himself in all the scriptures. Now I want to tell you, in about a second, I would trade all 90 credit hours of my seminary education for that one seven-mile walk where Jesus explained personally all the places that the Old Testament talks about him. The late Warren Wiersbe writes about that conversation, and I quote, uh, Warren Wiersbe wrote this about this walk. That was some Bible conference, and I wish I could have been there. Imagine the greatest teacher explaining the greatest themes from the greatest book. Perhaps Jesus started at Genesis 3.15, the first promise of the Redeemer, and, and traced that promise throughout the Scriptures. He may have lingered at Genesis 22, which tells of Abraham placing his beloved son on the altar. Surely he touched on the Passover, and the Levitical sacrifices, and the tabernacle ceremonies, the Day of Atonement, the serpent in the wilderness, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, and the prophetic messages of Psalms 22 and 69. The key to understanding the Bible is to see Jesus Christ on every 
page. Jesus did not teach them only doctrine or prophecy. He taught himself. Well, by the time Jesus gets done explaining the scriptures, he's told them, you've got the entire Old Testament pointing to the Messiah's birth in special circumstances, his amazing life, and then his suffering and his death and his resurrection. Then you've got you yourselves. You witnessed Jesus enough of Jesus' power to, to believe that, that he was the Messiah. You believed it before he died. Then you witnessed him suffer just like the scriptures predicted he would suffer. And now, Jesus says to them, now you've got people you know and trust and love telling you that the tomb is empty and angels are telling them that Jesus is not dead any longer. He has risen. And now you are telling me you don't believe. Jesus tells them, it's like he's asking them, what more evidence do you need? And at the conclusion of this, the world's greatest Bible conference, we can tell in verses 28 through 31 that these two travelers are considering the evidence. Because they arrive at their destination, the town of Emmaus, and Jesus acted as if he were just going to travel on without him. But these two were like, uh-uh, this is just now starting to get good. You come, please come in and stay with us. Boy, look at the time. You know, come and, and share a meal with us. And they, they want to hear more because, as we'll hear later, their hearts are burning in their chest from what they've just heard. So this stranger, they think, who is really Jesus, goes in and uh, they recline at the table. In those days, they, they laid down beside a low table. And see if this sounds familiar at all. This stranger, in verse 30, when he had taken his place at the table, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it. And gave it to them. That's why I believe these two were, were in the upper room with Jesus. And, and when Jesus begins to do that, he takes bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and starts to give it to him. I, I picture these two beginning to look at each other like, wait a minute, this is starting to sound familiar. Hey, wait a minute. This guy sounds just like, and maybe the other one says, this guy looks just like, and bam, all of a sudden, they're, they're allowed to recognize that it has been Jesus right there with them all along, just as Jesus vanishes from their sight. And in the end of the story, we see that the, these two travelers have come to, to an important realization or an important conclusion. And that is they conclude the evidence they have has been enough. At the end of the passage, we see them run back into Jerusalem where the rest of the, of the disciples are now talking about this and they share they, their story and they say Jesus is alive. But, but I want you to notice what in their own words was the best part. You know, while they're sitting there in their house, uh, just after Jesus vanishes, they've shared this incredible experience and they start doing what any of us would do. They start talking about the best parts. And I want you to notice in their words, 
what they say was the best part of this encounter with Jesus. I want you to notice what they do say and what they don't say. They don't say, wow, did you, did you catch that vanishing act that Jesus pulled off? They don't say, wow, man, that, that, uh, this miraculous experience made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Um, you know, wasn't it amazing how you and I, we could both recognize Jesus all of a sudden at the same moment? Wasn't that awesome? That's not what they say. That's not the best part. What they say was the best part was before they even knew it was Jesus. Read verse 32 with me. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? That was the best part. What, what made their hearts burn in their chest was not the miracle, was not uh, any of it. It was just hearing the evidence they had was evidence enough. This Everything that happened to our friend Jesus, the one we were following, it wasn't some strange, weird accident like the situation got away from God and he couldn't stop it and one thing led to another and suddenly Jesus was dead. No, this was the planned, prescribed end of the Messiah's life and the resurrection which took that life back up again. That's what made their hearts burn in their chests. That was the coolest thing that happened to them that day. Hey man, was, was your heart burning when he was explaining Jesus and how the Old Testament points to him? Yeah, mine was too. And that's the story of these strangers or these travelers on the road to Emmaus. You know, when, when Luke began his gospel at the very beginning of, of Luke. Luke tells us as his audience that what he wrote was basically a great big Jesus research paper. Because Luke was not an eyewitness to, uh, to the events around Jesus. Uh, so what Luke did is when he became a Christian, Luke traveled around and spoke to all of the eyewitnesses to Jesus's life that, that he could find. And then he compiled them into this gospel, this story of the life of Jesus. And what's amazing, what's interesting to me about, uh, about this passage, when Luke sits down to write what is maybe the most important part of his gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the foundation on which our faith stands. What's amazing to me is even though we know he talked to these people, Luke didn't share uh, Jesus' mom's story, even though he talked to Mary. He didn't share Peter or John's story. He didn't share the story of the women at the tomb. Jesus picks two relatively unknown people. He names one of them um, simply because, as, as like, look, I talked to this guy. And when Luke wrote this, he was, he was probably still alive. Go talk to him. But Luke chooses two relatively anonymous people we've never heard of before or since. And that's whose story they tell two travelers walking along some anonymous road to some anonymous place. And they themselves are two anonymous people. Isn't that interesting? Why would Luke choose to do that? 
And he's the only gospel writer that does it. This is the, he's the only one that includes this story. I think it's because Luke is sort of preaching to us. And Luke knows their story is closest to our story. So you and I, like those two travelers, we weren't at the empty tomb. We didn't get a visit from angels. Where these guys are at in this story, they're just walking along, examining the evidence, trying to make sense of what happened to Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, all he wants them to do is examine the evidence they already have, knowing they will find the evidence they have is evidence enough. Do you know, like them, the Lord is always close to us, closer than we know. And he wants from us exactly what he wanted from them. Examine the evidence. We will find it is evidence enough. You know, I don't normally do this in sermons, but I want to give you some homework. I want to challenge you to do a couple of things. Write these things down, and this will be saved on Facebook. You can go back to the end of this video and find uh, these passages. But I want you to look up Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Actually, um, Isaiah 53, could back up and start at Isaiah 52, 13. And then Isaiah 53. Just read those two passages. There's, there's dozens of places in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. It all does. But just read those two. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus lived. A thousand years is a long time. A thousand years ago, it was the year 1020. Isaiah was written 700 years ago. It was the 1300s, 700 years ago. That's how long 700 years. So just read those two passages, and I am confident you will find, you will know those two passages are written about Jesus and about his death. Then ask yourself, how could those things have been written a thousand and seven hundred years respectively before Jesus ever lived, before crucifixion was ever invented as a, as a method of execution. How could those two things be written about Jesus that long before he lived if God were not ordaining the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as his plan for redeeming mankind? The evidence of we have is evidence enough. Read those. Examine the scriptures. That's why it's so important to, to attend a church where they teach through the Bible because that's where the evidence is and it's evidence enough. And when you read those for yourself, don't ignore that burning in your heart. Your heart very, very well may burn to be, that is God tugging at your heart to get you to relent, to accept, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and your Savior. You see, most people who, who, who won't believe in Jesus, they don't have an evidence problem. They have a will problem. Because if Jesus really is who he said he was, Jesus is the King. And most of us don't want a King. We want to be our own Kings. Examine the evidence. And if, if you have enough evidence, if you find the evidence is there, I'm going to challenge you to just tell the Lord, I, I relent, I give. You are 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, and I want you to be my king. I believe you lived the perfect life. You died the death I deserved. And you rose again to prove to me, to give me evidence that it was true. And if you believe those things, you have a resurrection of your own to look forward to one day because he will save you, he will seal you, he will redeem you, and one day he will glorify you. He will resurrect you and take you to be with him forever. Pray with me and we'll close our time. Father God, I thank you so much for the evidence you have left us with. Not only that Jesus died for our sin, but he rose again to prove that was true. Thank you for the evidence that we have. I pray, God, that you would lead the people who are watching this video or listening to this audio to examine the evidence. And I pray you would lead them to be convinced that the evidence they have is evidence enough to believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Redeemer, the Savior that we need. We love you, Lord. We long to be with you. But in the meantime, help us to believe and to proclaim the evidence to others that they may believe and be saved as well. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.